the numbers all go to 11. I'm talking about bands that rock. Led Zeppelin. What about Sabbath? ACDC. Motorhead. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder, isn't it? We're not worthy! We're not worthy! Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. I get up above the ground and raise my head days like this. Think I should be dead. One for Satan, two for me. Let's cheat the devil, it's fun. Welcome to the Nothing Shocking Podcast. I'm your co-host, Bob Zerl. Not really with me, but on the phone is... Coach Nuz. Visit us at zpnetwork.com, zoicsonline.com. We're on Facebook at the Nothing Shocking Podcast community fan page. And the Quad Cities Rock and Roll Junkies interest group. Our Twitter Twitter handle is NoShockPod. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, all your podcatchers. Rate and review the show. Subscribe to the show. We'll read your reviews on the air. We're also on Rock Rage Radio Tuesday, or Sundays at 2 p.m. Central Time. Uh, our sponsors are? Yeah, Ragged Records, uh, Rock Island, Illinois, and Davenport, Iowa. Uh, Davenport, Iowa location is still under construction. Hopefully, they'll be open this fall. Uh, we got Legends Guitar Picks out of Milan, Illinois, and Rockstar Picks Rocks out of Queens, New York. I want to thank the band Hong Kong Sleepover for letting us use their music. And our guest this week is Gary Peel, who we'll get to in a little bit. Uh, Not really any news that I noticed, but I did go out of town. I went to Cedar Rapids, Iowa to check out Rob Zombie and Marilyn Manson. And while there, I got to try the new Slipknot whiskey, which is pretty good. Yeah. I was shocked at how good it was, actually. Uh. So uh, give us a little uh, synopsis of the show. They play pretty much everything that you wanted to hear? Uh, Yeah. I mean, Marilyn Manson, I haven't really listened to him since the early 2000s, so I was worried that he wasn't going to play a lot of new stuff. And there wasn't very many new songs, which I know the diehard fans probably were (laughs) frustrated with. But uh, it it was a surprisingly decent show. Uh, He seemed to be all there, you know, sober and put on a good show you know you've heard the bad stories about Marilyn Manson lately but uh this one he was all put together and it was actually pretty entertaining uh I did get in my first mosh pit fight (laughs) all right I well it wasn't my fault the guy behind me just tried to push in front of me and was like knocking a bunch of girls over and uh, he had me in an awkward position I just kind of tried to get myself comfortable and then he came behind (laughs) me and he like put me in, tried to put me in a headlock and he scratched my neck pretty bad to the point where, cause it was, we were kind of turning it as our honeymoon, which is a weird way to treat, go to a honeymoon is Rob Zombie and Marilyn Manson. But at work the next day, they were all, is that a hickey on your neck? And I was like, no, I got in a fight at a Marilyn Manson concert and I couldn't decide what was more embarrassing, <laughs> but, but he did apologize well, later and it was, everything was all good. He was just a little rambunctious, yeah. And then absolutely, and then Rob Zombie always puts on a good show. I mean, the guy is fifty-four years old, and he moves like he's, you know, twenty-five. Uh, probably better than he did when he was twenty-five. He just, it's just phenomenal. John Five is an amazing guy to watch live. Uh, 
Piggy D is a great bass player. Ginger Fish is a great drummer. And then the whole stage setup, it's just, it's a lot of fun. So I, I, you can't go wrong with a Rob Zombie show, in my opinion, even if you don't like him. I think it's the kind of guy that you go see him live, you're like, oh, that's a lot better than I thought it'd be. Yeah. Uh, what was your impression of uh, Brandon Kurtzborn, the drummer for Marilyn Manson? Uh, they did this cool thing at the end for Beautiful People, you know, that intro, that drum intro. Marilyn mm-hmm. Manson took some guitar sticks and, or some drum sticks and played it on the guitar, the intro, uh, while the guitar player held it. And then they kind of did a little drum battle. Marilyn Manson would do the intro to Beautiful People, and then he would do an awesome drum solo. Like, it was probably a couple minutes long. It was, it, I was pretty impressed. You know, they gave him a little time to shine. It was a, it was actually a really neat, thing to see especially if you like drumming but yeah they did it then they did it all in the encore too they did it they let them really shine that little solos during the encore which is you normally don't see that so it's pretty cool well awesome fantastic sounds like you had a blast yeah great show i I highly recommend if they keep doing this twins of evil tour if they come to your town go see it there it's a lot of fun Uh, absolutely well how awesome is that uh, it's really cool. They're the perfect pair too. I mean, kind of the shock shock guys from that era, shock rockers or whatever. Uh, you know, you throw yeah. Alice Cooper on top of it, and you got the dream lineup. And absolutely. Well, that sounds like a, I wish I could have went. I just life gets in the way. I can't go to all of them, so I have to wait till Ghost now. <laughs> yeah, we're just coming up soon, October eighth. That'll be the next big yeah, one. Absolutely. I think. Unless flying cars yeah. come sooner. Uh, well, what we got? What we got coming up here? We got who? Gary Peel. We got Gary Peel. Uh, another fantastic interview. Uh, I don't know. What do you remember about that interview? We did it a couple weeks ago. Yeah, well, you know, first of all, number one, everybody's got to realize that he's a rhythm and lead guitar player for Boston. He was also the former rhythm and lead guitar player for Sammy Hagar back in the uh, early days of the, uh, I Can't Drive 55 and albums before that. Uh, we got a huge track record as far as, uh, you know, important albums that he mm-hmm. participated on. So, yeah, uh, maybe kind of a, 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 a guy that people kind of, um, maybe I wouldn't say forgotten about, but maybe overlooked a little bit. Well, definitely, definitely overlooked. Because, uh, like you said, he's played on some great albums, great songs. I mean, and it's not like he joined Boston yesterday. He's been in Boston since the mid-'80s. Uh, you know, yeah. it's... Yeah, it's he's been on some important hits of theirs and Sammy Hagar as well. It was a, a lot of fun to talk to, and he, he had some great stories, and it was just interesting, I thought. Yeah, highly intelligent guy, uh, wealth of knowledge, and uh, like I said, just it played on some incredible albums. Just really glad we had him on the show. Yeah, so I guess without further ado, let's throw out the Gary Peel. Yeah, good night. Hey, Gary. Hey, how you doing today? Very good. Hey, uh, welcome to the Nothing Shocking Podcast. I'm your co-host, Eric Nesbitt. I want to introduce you to my other co-host, Bob Zerrell. Hello. Hey, Bob. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Well, fantastic. Well, first of all, I want to thank you so much for uh, agreeing to do this with us. And you have got like the uh, best press contact in the world, John Lamp, and he's been great to work with. Uh, please tell him thank you for us once again. 
Oh, good. I'm glad to know that. Uh, he certainly seems like a nice guy. I've never met him in person, <laughs> uh, but uh, certainly seems like a nice guy and on top of things. He is on top of it. I mean, he is thorough. Uh, when he contacted me about doing some interviews, very thorough, follows up. So uh, whatever you're paying him, he's doing a good job. <laughs> Great. Good to know. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, um, I know you've always been a very extremely busy guy. Um, at the present time, what are you working on? Uh, well, uh, a couple of projects, as you can imagine. <laughs> uh, one was uh, our Boston lead singer, Tommy DiCarlo, has a record coming out here this month, actually. And I played on a couple of tracks of that and glad to help him out there. Uh, because uh, those two tracks that I played on were written by another friend of ours who lives close by me here in the Boston area. Uh, and so I had been helping him put together some demos of his songs. He's a singer song. Well, he's a songwriter. He's also a terrific singer, mm -hmm. but he, he's not a performance guy. He, he doesn't want to be in a band per se, but he's a, a great songwriter. So I've been helping him uh, make some demos. So those were these, those kind of projects. And then uh, on top of that, I've been uh, digitizing some of the old Boston video footage that we've had since the 70s. So that's a big project. I, I hope someday some of that sees the light of day. Uh, but right now we're just trying to digitize it all and, and watch what we have to see what we actually have. So that's that's a big project too. As far as when you talk about redigitizing uh, certain live shows from the Boston era, um, when you're taking on something like that, because I, I, I forgive my ignorance about that subject, but uh, when, when you're going through the archives of things of that nature, you know how massive of a job is it to go in and redigitize all these past performances? Yeah, it's it's not redigitize; it's digitize oh. once because this stuff was on videotape. So uh, luckily, I've got access to a couple of professional machines that were used on some of the stuff. Some of it was, you know, the old VHS. But uh, some of it went back as far as uh, three-quarter inch U-Matic, which you may not even have heard of that. Mm -hmm. And then there was call, uh, another format called Beta SP. And so, uh, again, I have access to those machines. And so we're going through taking them off of the tape and now entering them into the computer, digitizing them, so that anybody can edit them on you know, a modern uh, editing system today. But, yeah, so part of that project, though, of course, is what do we have? You know, what kind of footage do we have? You know, so, again, it's been a lot of fun to look back over the years. Absolutely. Um, I kind of wanted to kind of take it to a little bit different direction with you before we kind of even start talking about Boston. But um, Alliance is something that you've been a part of since 1997. Um, you know, I guess this, this portion of uh, with Alliance uh, it's kind of hit and miss. Is it considered a alliance? Is that considered a, a a side project, or is it like a full investment when you are active and within that band? How does it work? Well, <laughs> yeah, it's you're right. It's a little bit of both. <laughs> so, uh, gosh, uh, I'll give you a little history if if you don't mind. If I have a minute to do that, absolutely. Uh, I'll just say, uh, I'll go back to I was in Sammy Hagar's band. Uh, he got the call to join Van Halen. Uh, but when I was in Sammy's band, we got to open up for Boston's, the end of Boston's first tour. And then we did the whole second tour with him. And, and that's why I keep bringing back, you know, the name of Boston because that we're all tied together somehow. Mm -hmm. you know? 
uh, anyway, so the point of that was, though, that uh, so we got to know the guys in Boston pretty well, and we kept in touch. And then when Sammy got the call to join Van Halen in 85, Tom Scholes from Boston called and, and asked me if I would come out to play on one more song on the third stage album, Boston's third album. And of course I said, well, I'm, I'd be thrilled. Yeah, I'm out of a gig. <laughs> so I'd be, you know, mm-hmm. besides loving the band Boston, I'd love to do that. So I left from uh, our last gig with Sammy, which was Farm Aid One out in Champaign, Illinois, and uh, flew directly to Boston to start working with Tom. And originally he had only offered, you know, for me to play on this one song, one last song to be recorded for the record. But after I'd been there a few weeks, he said, well, you know, I think we work well together. Why don't you move back here? We'll finish the record. We'll do a tour, which we did. And then, but at the end of that tour, uh, he had said, okay, now it's going to take a few more years to make the next Boston record. So if anybody has any side projects, anything you want to do, go ahead. Now's the time to do it. So I called up my old uh, Sammy Hager uh, bandmates, David Lauser on drums, and Alan Fitzgerald on keys, who had since gone on to play with Night Ranger. Uh, and they reminded me that Geffen Records, our label with Sammy, was trying to put together us with Robert Berry because they said, hey, you guys are a great band. Yeah, you lost your singer. We'll just you know get another singer and plug him in and keep going. <laughs> and we would have done that except... Again, uh, Fitz was off with Night Ranger, and I went off with Boston, so it didn't happen until now. Here I, you know, I'm calling the guys back again. Hey, let's do some side project. Uh, not knowing how long it would take uh, for the next Boston record, or you know what I'd be doing in the meantime. You know, I, I kind of had no idea at that point, and uh, so we got together with Robert, actually in Sammy's recording studio out in California. And uh, we just all clicked, you know, we all loved the same kind of music and all that. And uh, we showed each other our song ideas and put together some songs right away and uh, put out that first record. Well, Chris, then, you know, I got busy. Fitz was busy. You know, uh, Robert has been doing all kinds of stuff. And even Dave Lauser had uh, kept working with Sammy on Sammy's solo projects. And even when he was with Van Halen. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, once he left Van Halen, then uh, he was back in his band as well. So anyway, Mm -hmm. long story short, we were so busy doing our other things that Alliance became a side project, even though if I mean, if it would have been a hit or something, we would have, yeah, you know, done more touring or whatever with that. But uh, then I'm sorry to say that didn't quite happen for us. You know, the the side project um, is kind of a a fascinating subject for me because um, so many artists will, it's a one-off thing or it's maybe one or two, maybe the second one comes out five, six, seven years, whatever, years later. Um, I guess when you are, Using, a, using it as a side project, I, how much can you focus on, on that side project being the priority before, you know, like, okay, I got to go back to focusing on Boston or whatever. Is there always like a, a certain time frame for what maybe with you with side projects? Okay, like I, I can only allocate this much time to make this work. How does it work out? Uh, you're right. You definitely have to uh, allocate time to one or the other. And for us with Alliance, uh, and as you can imagine with most musicians, you know, you're always thinking of riffs and ideas and you hear some catchphrase, oh, that'd be a good lyric, you know. So you write that stuff down. And uh, and as you do that, you 
at least me, I have something in mind. It's like, oh, this would be a good song for Boston, or this would be a good song for Alliance, or this would be a good song for like a female vocalist or whatever, you know, whatever the, the music or style or something, you, you kind of have something in your mind thinking, gee, that'd be good for this kind of music or artist or that sort of thing. And so uh, all of us would kind of squirrel those away, put them in the song bank, so to speak. And we just want to work on the stuff once we're together in the same room. You know, like, we'll all bring in ideas. But for us, that, you know, the magic and the fun part happens when we're all there, you know, plug in an amp, turn on the guitar, you know, crank this up and play through some riffs and try stuff. And and that's when you never know what's going to happen because you get that immediate feedback from the other guys. And the, the other side of it is that we all trust each other because we've known each other for so long. We trust everybody to just do the right thing for the song. You know, no one's trying to be a virtuoso like, oh, let me play this part here because I can play this really fast. <laughs> it's, no, it's like, what do we need to do to make this song sound really good? And again, that's the fun part for us. And for instance, the title track, Fire and Grace, for the, the new uh, Alliance C Day, was something where I had a guitar riff, Dave had a cool drum groove, and Robert said, you know, I got some lyrics that might work with that. So we were at Robert's studio, uh, we hit the record button, went out in the room, and we wrote that four-minute song in four minutes. We just <laughs> played it through. That was it. So so that's the fun part about being in a band. Again, guys that you've known, that you've played with, you worked with for years, you just go do it. You know. So that, again, and I wish fans could see that process too, that, you know, like five minutes ago, that song didn't exist, and now... Man, that's a rocking song, you know. Absolutely. How did that happen? But you know, it just does. No, I'm fascinated by the songwriting process, especially you know if you come up with the idea and then it's kind of your song, and then you bring a band in. You know, there's two ways where you know you have that song that appears in five minutes, and then you have the situation where you don't necessarily like what the other guy is doing to the song you created. Like, how do you, do you ever, have you ever had that scenario happen where it wasn't gelling with your initial idea? And two, I guess, how do you, uh, is it hard to be open to others ideas based on something you created? Uh, you're right. Uh, on that first point. Yes. Uh, sometimes we'll, you know, bring in, one of us will bring in an idea and the other guys will say, well, you know, this doesn't seem to gel with this or, uh, somebody will say, you know, this part that you have as the verse, that ought to be the chorus, and the chorus ought to be the verse, you know? <laughs> and so it can be just a simple arrangement thing, or it could be like, oh, man, I really hear this going to a minor key or this and that. Or, for instance, uh, you know, our drummer Dave will say, oh, you know, in this one part in the bridge here, strum the guitar kind of like this, you know? And he's not a guitar player. but And so here's the drummer telling me how to play guitar, <laughs> right? But... I trust him because I know, again, he just wants the song to sound good. And, and so I tried. And, yeah, he's usually got some good idea. So, the, you know, yeah, we leave the egos at the door. And it doesn't matter if somebody said, no, that sucks, you know. <laughs> okay, well, hey, let's make it better, you know. So sometimes, yeah, our ideas get shut down. But because we all um, – I think we're all on the same page – we know when it's working and when it's not working, you know, so it's, it's completely obvious, like, well, you know, it's just that, that didn't gel, you know, that, that transition didn't work, or this, again, this verse doesn't sound like it goes with that chorus, you know, maybe we should do something else. So, so it always seems pretty obvious to all of us. That's cool. You mentioned the, the song bank. 
like we're all fans of a lot of different music. So when you know when you're in a band or in a couple of bands, like you said, this one is good for Boston. This one's good for this. This one's good for a female. How many? In, in terms of your song bank, are there are there several songs that'll never see the light of day, or riffs that'll never see the light of day, or do you get to pretty much act on uh, most of those? Oh no, I've got <laughs> I've got tons of riffs that <laughs> no one else will probably ever hear, you know. And who knows if they're any good or not? You know, you, you never know. But uh, just stuff that I've come up with either just by fooling around with a guitar at home and messing around with sounds and got something in your head you know you wake up in the middle of night and you're humming a song like oh let me write that down and or play it or something and yeah some of them (laughs) see the light of day and some don't you know a band like boston has such a distinct sound have they ever you ever felt you know pigeonholed by the sound or is it just no it's cool we can keep doing what we're doing and the other songs can go to side projects or, you know, I guess how does, do you ever feel pigeonholed? I guess I, I like to ask all our artists that. Yeah. Uh, for me, no. Uh, the, again, obviously Tom Scholes invented that sound and the, you know, those songs and all that, and that's his vision. And I'm just glad to be a part of that to help those come to life. And I, I got to say, when we're in the studio, uh, working on his stuff because again he'll write a song and, and then he'll show it to us and we'll we'll start playing it. He's very open to suggestions, so it's not as if no no you, you got to do it this way. This is the thing. So if we have ideas, we just throw them in and and if they work, they work. You know, so uh, that's been great. And I got to say that was the same way with Sammy as well. That he was the songwriter. Uh, he'd come up with ideas, but we'd all throw in our take on it and and come up with our own parts. You know, he never said, oh, we'll play it like this or do this part. No, it's like, hey, go for it, you know, uh, make this song better. So that's been a wonderful experience with both those groups. You know, since 86, you've been a member of Boston. Um, throughout the years, the band has had studios, studio releases kind of like a sporadically for various reasons that it's been well documented. Um, I guess... Boston is kind of like a mystery to me in so many different ways because huh. you, you, you hear from them, then you don't hear from them a long time, then you hear from them again. I guess as far as a, a, the status of Boston, where where is Boston at on a creative level? Uh, again, Tom Scholz writes the songs, and he's always coming up with guitar riffs. I mean, just as we're w- warming up or uh, you know uh, doing a sound check or this or that, Tom will be playing some stuff and thinking of things and – so, yeah, he's, uh, again, like a lot of musicians, he's constantly creative. Uh, but he has always said that he's slow in the studio. <laughs> and it's not because he doesn't know what to do, but it's because he wants to try a lot of different options. And uh, and he's very critical of his own uh, output. So he said that he'll work on a song for six months and then throw it away. You know, it's like you know, it just didn't work. You know, I, I whatever, it, it didn't come to fruition like he thought it was going to. And so, and he always says that that first album took him like four years to make be, because of that process. You know, he was always trying different things and you know throwing things away or whatever. And so the second album came out two years later, and he said that was really too rushed. Part of that reason that it was rushed was because they were on the road. You know, as soon as the first album came out, they hit the road and they were such a big success that they kept touring, uh, uh, you know, like longer than they should have to, to go back to the studio to make it the next record. So he said, yeah, I was 
really rushed on that second album. And so he said, for the third album, I'm going to take my time. And it took eight years to, to come out finally. Uh, and of course, you know, as Andy Warhol said, you know, you're only entitled to 15 minutes of fame. <laughs> so we had no idea if people would like it or not. I mean, eight years later, I mean, you think about if you were in junior high, now you're in college, right. <laughs> you know, that's been a long time that, you know, to go through high school and college and then it's like, Oh, that band I liked in junior high, they got a new record out, you know, like who would care. Right. <laughs> But uh, thank goodness uh, Boston's got uh, terrific, you know, devoted fans. And the third stage album went to number one. And the, uh, the single from that, Amanda, went to number one as well. So people did stick around uh, to hear the next project. But then the next one was another six years later. So, and at that time, the thought was you only put out a new record and tour, or you only, I should say, you only tour when you have a new record. So... Uh, that was the way things go. Now, again, when I was in Sammy's band, we, we did a new record and tour every year. Uh, but, uh, and so Tom was just following that, that sort of guideline. And so he, you know, didn't want to tour between records. Well, of course, these days with classic rock radio, uh, and the fact that we're a mature band, people just want to hear the old songs anyway. You know, it's like, <laughs> Hey, we don't care if you got new stuff, just play the old ones. You know? So, uh, for instance, we went on tour, uh, 2014, 15, 16, 17, you know, four years in a row, which was more work than the band had ever done. You know, mm -hmm. the band had never been on the road four years in a row. So it's funny how things change over time. It's interesting to me. I'm curious as, you know, as a songwriter and a creator, you know, there is, you have the bands like, you know, Zeppelin or Aerosmith that are kind of sloppy, but sometimes that, that looseness, you know, adds a little character to it. Then you have bands like, you know, Journey and Boston and, you know, even Van Halen. It's just really tight and it's perfect. Uh, but like you said, it takes eight years between albums sometimes when you do that. Yeah. As a songwriter and a producer, you know, just a creator, where do you prefer when you're working? Do you like it to like, like that's good enough or do you need it to be, you know, as tight as Boston is? Well, I certainly like to... Uh, feel that we've got the groove, whatever that is. In other words, um, which doesn't mean that it's metronomically perfect. Like, you know, if you put a metronome to our songs, they wouldn't line up. And that's the same way with Boston as well. Uh, you, you would think, oh, well, you know, if Tom Schultz, if he's going to take eight years to make a record, you know, it's probably absolutely, you know, perfect down to the nanosecond. Right. You know, no, no, not at all. If you put a metronome to it, you'll see that the it, it ebbs and flows. You know, gets faster and slower here, and and that's again, that's what makes it sound human. That that you relate to it, and it feels right. And uh, again, his process is very much like um, uh, us with in Alliance, where we only want to record when we're all together playing the song. Uh, so Tom does that as well, and he's so he's running. You know, of course, he he runs analog tape, right? So, but full master tape, like he's not making demos, right? Where a lot of bands, you know, you do a demo on whatever medium just to try it out, you know, just like to listen back and, oh, that was good or not. No, no, he goes right to the, you know, full two-inch, you know, analog tape. This is going to be the record if I like the way this comes out. And uh, because, he, again, he and, again, I have to mention Sammy again. Same thing. It's like sometimes that first time you play it, 
has the magic. And it's tough to recreate that later. You know, if you've done it 20 times, you know, you start forgetting about it. You start thinking about the next song or whatever. So sometimes that first take has got it, has got the groove. Or whenever you feel like, oh, okay, now we got to make, maybe it's the third take or the fourth or the 20th, whatever it is. But when, but whenever it is, you feel like that's it. Stop there. You know, don't try to, you know, keep polishing the, that just, you know, let that go like that. There it is. That's the groove. Keep that and then build on top of that. You know, you've been a part of third stage. You're part of walk on and both albums had that anticipation behind them. Uh, like you said, eight years to, in the making of third stage uh, walk on took another six years to make, uh, you know, as being unconventionally as that is, that is these days, was there a, what was the feeling like being a part of something that had so much hype behind it? The anticipation of these albums that were had not yet come out, but there was a lot of chirping going on. And that was before the internet. You had to read magazines about it to get any type of info. Um, did you feel like any other like pressure make being a part of those albums than anything else? Or was it pretty much status quo? Uh, I'd have to say that it was, uh, what I expected. Uh, and when I, uh, again, obviously I had seen Boston's, you know, first two albums, again, those came out fairly quickly. And then it, I, I obviously experienced that the third one took a long time and I could see Tom's process. As I say, when I was working on that last song with him, you know, it, it took a while to, to finish that. And then of course, mastering on top of that took a while. And so I knew from the get go that it was not going to be a quick process. Like, uh, again, I'll mention Sammy again. The last record I did with Sammy, which had I Can't Drive 55 on it, we recorded that whole thing in 12 days. <laughs> so I knew that Boston was not that way. And so, uh, I, so yeah, there were a lot of people, of course, would ask us, like, hey, when's that last, next Boston record coming or what's going on? <laughs> or, of course, a lot of people would say, oh, did you guys break up because they hadn't heard of us in <laughs> two, three, four, five years? They just assumed <laughs> You were long gone, you know. No, no, we're still together. We're working on this, and yeah, we'll have a record. So, uh, the, you know, unfortunately, as you say, without the internet, uh, it was kind of hard to keep track and keep tabs on, you know, what might have been your favorite band. It's like, where are these guys? I haven't heard, you know. Again, I I was in junior high. Now I'm in college. Where do they go? You know. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of tough uh, for that regard. But again, I I knew that's what it was going to be when I joined. No, I mean, we keep talking about Sammy, obviously, and I don't want to make it about Sammy, but I, he is one of my – yeah. it seems like the the older I get, the more and more I like him. And even, you know, they got that meme of, like, Bill Clinton and Sammy Hagar next to each other, and they're the same age. <laughs> uh, uh. Does rock and roll keep make you younger? And I'm, I, You know, it, I'm, it sounds like a joke, but I'm kind of serious. I mean, if you look at guys like Steven Tyler and Sammy Hagar and even yourself and everybody, they, they just – they don't look – you know, they can still keep going. Alice Cooper. I mean, is there something to that? I think so. <laughs> uh, again, because we love what we're doing. And I, I think probably anybody in any career, if you love what you're doing, you've got the passion for it and you're happy, right? You know, as opposed to somebody that has a job that they don't like. And it could be as a musician, you know, who knows? If you just don't like doing it, 
it's you know it's like oh I hate going to work I hate doing this so yeah that's got to make you older so doing stuff you like whatever it is has got to keep you young your um uh, career with Sammy what span for what seventy was it seventy seven to eighty four is that correct am I right am I getting close there yeah eighty five yeah. seventy seven eighty five so yeah, years, okay. yeah. um. Your involvement with Sammy, uh, some very legendary albums, uh, Danger Zone, Standing in Hampton, uh, Three Lock Box, and of course VOA. Um, that process of making such, I, you know, maybe at the time, uh, th- th- as time has gone by, they've matured and people have like, wow, these are some incredible albums. Uh, writing process, recording albums such as that with Sammy, was it pretty much uh, the same? methodology when you went into the studio to create these what i would say masterpieces of classic rock or every time you made it a, a, a different album with sammy was with were things different or how did it work we like to think that we got better at the recording process <laughs> over the years uh we uh, were always disappointed that the uh, the records, in our estimation, weren't as good as the live performance. And if you've ever seen Sammy, you, you know, you can understand why, because he's so dynamic on stage, you know, uh, got a lot of charisma and is just joyful to watch. And again, people ask, uh, what's it like working with him? And I always say, hey, what you see is what you get. You know, <laughs> he's always in a good mood, always ready to rock, great musician, spontaneous, all that stuff. And so that's sometimes hard to bottle up and do it in a studio, uh, you know, when you're on the clock, like, okay, get ready, go, be spontaneous, you know? <laughs> and so we always felt that, uh, again, our live performances were better than what we achieved on record, at least in our mind for the the sound and the, uh, what can I say, just just the sound of it, you know, it's like, wow, it, it sounds different live somehow. And of course, maybe that was just our interpretation of being in an arena, playing someplace, it sounds different than, again, being in a, a small studio, even with the studio effects or whatever. It's not, it's not the same as having a cr- crowds cheer and sing along with you uh, as you're playing these songs. So that was tough. So uh, over the years, I thought we definitely improved on that. And we worked with different producers, uh, you know, some great ones, as again, as the band went along. And so we, we got to work with some great guys who were able to get the best out of uh, Sammy knowing that, you know, he's such a live performer, like, you know, how can we, how can we capture that, uh, you know, lightning in a bottle, so to speak? You know, and I, that kind of goes back to a question I asked earlier about, you know, the perfect versus the loose. And I had kind of worded it poorly, but, uh, you know, there are a lot of great live bands that they aren't, they're not as, they're better live than they are on the record. And as, you know, like Kiss comes to mind, like I mentioned, Aerosmith, there, is that, is that due to, you know, like you said, recording it in 12 days, or is that due to just sitting there and go, no, we got to do it again, you know, similar to the, the Boston thing? And I, I mean, I don't mean to be perfect as in every note, but you know what I'm, I don't know what I'm trying to say exactly, but. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I definitely understand. Yeah. So uh, it, it's, again, yeah, it's always a, a fine line of like, was that it? Did that, you know, did, you know, did that have the magic? You know, is that the groove? Or do we really have the bull by the horns? You know, uh, and so that's it, it's hard to know as right. you're in the studio. You know, like wow, that felt good or that sounded good to me, and uh, and you hope it does. And for us, uh, again, 
uh, even some of the earliest records that I did with them, that we think like, oh yeah, we got it. That sounded great. And then you hear the mix later on that the producer or whatever has mixed later. And for whatever reason, you say, wow, I thought it sounded better <laughs> in the studio. <laughs> like that day, it sounded great. And this now sounds, you know, a little bit compressed or somehow squashed, you know, uh, not as huge as it does coming out of those big studio speakers, you know, when you got it cranked up <laughs> quite a bit. You're like, well, now when you listen on the radio, it's it sounds a little smaller, you know, somehow. So. There's some technical aspects to it, and again, maybe your enthusiasm at the time, you know, thinking, oh, this, you know, this was fantastic, and then, well, I guess it wasn't that good later on. Or, or, again, it's it's just like our opinion, because we had such high opinions, or, you know, we, we always think like, yeah, right. that was great, we did it. And you're right, we don't necessarily say, I executed my part just perfectly. Well, no, no, you... It's like, yeah, but how did it fit with the rest of the band? Right. As I say, you know, if you slow down and speed up, you got to be with the other guys, you know, no matter what. Whether you think, no, I'm going to play exactly 132 beats per minute. If they don't keep up with me, that's too bad, you know. No, no, you can't think like that. <laughs> you got to say, yeah, how does it flow with the with the band? When you're like, if you're listening to classic rock and you know a, a song like Amanda or one of the early Sammy Hagar songs or I can't or whatever, where do you like mentally? Where do you go? Do you go back to the time when you were creating it? Do you go back? Do you just listen to it at the moment? Do you turn the station or do you just kind of hear yourself and uh, critique it the whole time? Like, where are you when you hear it on the radio today? Oh, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know it. You're you're right. Sometimes it's like I go back in the studio thinking, yeah, how do we record that or that sort of thing. And then, but if if it has some other uh, like if the song has something else, some other meaning attached to it for me, like oh man, I remember when we played that at such and such concert when you know <laughs> some girl ran on stage during the middle of that song or <laughs> you know whatever it was. You know, there's something that you remember about that song. Uh, and or, uh, again, your, your frame of mind when uh, you either heard it for the first time or or it was finished for the first time or recording it, whatever it is, if there was something special about it, that's that's what I think of. That's very cool. Uh, my last question, I don't know what Eric has after I this. Got, but, I have one more after this. But uh, when we... When I grew up, you know, there was... You know, I was born in 79, so it was even different before that, but there was this mystery behind the bands we didn't know you know you didn't know if jimmy page worshiped the devil or if paul was dead there's all these things that you had to buy the magazines you had to read the liner notes you had to go to the concerts we ended up putting these artists on pedestals and treating them like gods and now today it's very everything's accessible and we know what the artists are having for dinner and we can see them meeting all their fans at the meet and greets. And I think both have their positives, but I guess as a fan and as an artist, do you kind of prefer the mystery or do you like the accessibility? I personally, I like the accessibility. I read uh, a lot of biographies for other musicians because I want to know where they come from. Mm -hmm. What were their influences? You know, why did they end up, creating music that sounds like this, you know, where they come from. So I, I do appreciate them, you know, telling me. So I, I definitely read a lot of uh, biographies. I guess one last question for you, and then we'll be done bothering you for the evening. <laughs> so, it's okay. uh, yeah, you know, this part of your career, um, you know, you've done the thing where you've toured 
North America and obviously you probably toured Europe and what have you. Um, how do you approach when you're going to go tour? We've heard all these methods now. Artists like to just do those like small fly-in dates where they do like a Friday, Saturday or Thursday, Friday, Saturday or uh, just play festivals only or what. So in, in your head right now, you know, how in this part of your career, um, what what is your preference when it comes to playing live and touring? Well, as a matter of fact, with Alliance, we were hoping to do some festivals here this summer. Uh, I had told the guys that Boston won't be touring this summer. So I said, I'll be available. Uh, and if you guys are available, let's see if we can do that. And we thought that festivals would be a good venue for us because we're not very well known as Alliance. You know, people may know us from our other bands, mm-hmm. but at a festival, you know, the audience goes knowing they're they're going to see and hear bands they've never seen and heard before. So we think that'd be a good venue for us. And our record label uh, is based in England. And of course, they have festivals over there and Europe as well. Uh, so besides the U.S., uh, yeah, other places have festivals. And we thought that would be a good place for us to be and to really try out our songs uh, on people sometimes for the first time where they've never heard us before. Uh, with Boston, we usually do a summer tour where, you know, we work you know, like five uh, nights a week, you know, uh, mm-hmm. usually like three on, one off, two on, one off kind of thing throughout the whole summer. And uh, that works well for us, uh, you know, as we, again, travel around the country. And and it's uh, it's been a few years since we've been to Japan, uh, but we did go over there for a few shows. But so it's mostly the U.S. and some dates in Canada where, again, we can do that, you know, like five nights a week, you know, we're playing. And as you can imagine, you know, you get into a groove of like, okay, we got it. You know, we, you know, something happens bad in the, in the middle of the set, like somebody breaks a string or your your cable doesn't work or something. (laughs) You know, we're so much in the groove that we can just keep going. It doesn't matter. It doesn't bother us. Like, Oh my God, something happened, you know? (laughs) So yeah, we, we definitely get in the whole spirit of it. Like, Hey, we're going to keep rolling and nobody's going to stop us. So that, that's a great feeling too. Well, fantastic. Well, um, before we let you go for the evening, um, is there anything else that you would like to promote or plug? Uh, At this point, uh, the other thing that actually Robert and Dave and I do is a charity band called December People. And I don't know if you've talked to Robert Berry or not, but uh, he had come up with this idea about 10 years ago. And uh, so in, in November and December, we get together and we play traditional holiday songs but in the styles of other bands. And so we'll do, uh, you know, Santa Claus is to come into town like ZZ Top would do it. You You better watch out. You better not cry. Or uh, The Who playing Joy to the World, you know, the acoustic guitar like Pinball Wizard and then Joy to the World. And we even do a song that sounds like Boston. And uh, again, ACDC, Led Zeppelin, uh, Huey Lewis, Santana, on a Tom Petty, like every song, uh, every holiday song is done as if it were by a different band. And so it's a lot of fun. It's family friendly. And every show we do is a benefit for a local food bank usually. So that's a wonderful thing that we love doing in November and December. So that, that's the other thing I would push. Like if you ever hear December people is coming to town, that's what it is. Fantastic. Well, this is how this is going to work. Um, we have a couple episodes ahead of yours. So your episode probably will be out between two to three weeks, I'm guessing. That'd be right, Bob? Yeah. Right. And then once uh, it's all 
Bob is our editing wizard, so when he gets it all put together, I will send you the link, and please share it wherever you may possible, and we'll do the same. Uh, well, thank you so much. Hey. I sure appreciate it. It's been a thrill to have you on the show. Thank you so much, and I'll be in touch with you in about three weeks. Well, thanks, guys. We'll see you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.